Hello and welcome to episode 198 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story features a man who possibly enjoyed the sound of his voice more than Piers Morgan. Okay, I know I'm just being silly now. But like so many stories we hear on this podcast, it returns to our theme that we see in our lives and is amplified on our social media every day. Reality versus the facade that people create. Before we begin, as always, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, especially this week's new members of this exclusive club. That is Lewis Lundy, Jonathan Greenwell, Marissa Ann, Hayley Grocop and Marcus H. It's great to have you all on board and thank you so much for your support. If you haven't joined the fun yet, come and join the party at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. I'm delighted that this episode is again sponsored by Wooga, the creator of June's Journey. Have you played it yet? Released almost three years ago, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game set in the 1920s, with over 3 million active fans all around the world, including me. I love it as a game as it's challenging but relaxing, and I love the beautiful, colourful detail of the game. Each of the scenes has been handcrafted. If, like me, you love the style of the 1920s, you will love it. And even if not, the detective in you will not be able to stop playing as you take on the role of June who returns home to her family's estate only to find her sister murdered, leading to a global quest to solve the crime. This is a free-to-download mobile game available for free on mobile devices and on desktop through Amazon and Facebook. Come and join me and all the other players today Download June's Journey for free from the App Store or Google Play, or by clicking the link in the show notes for this episode. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. Have you played this game yet? I'm only on level 52, but I already love Best Fiends, as it's a casual game that you can just play when you have a few minutes free. I play it when I'm on trains or planes. It's great, as you don't need internet connection, and I played it earlier today on my phone when I had 20 minutes free whilst the children were go-karting. I really enjoy the challenging puzzles and the gameplay is awesome with great characters who you collect during the game. Like me, I guarantee you will love the vibrancy of the colour quality and the game design, which is always a really big deal for me. So why not come and join me on Best Fiends? Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters along the way. And with over 100 million downloads, This 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play for loads of your family and friends too. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Join me today. Number one in the UK was the Sugar Babes with About You Now, keeping Mark Ronson and Amy Winehouse from the top spot with Valerie. That was a great video, wasn't it? In the US, Crank That was top of the pile with Tellem. In Australia, the top album was Matchbox 20 with Exile on Mainstream. In the news this month, after years of angry denials, triple gold medal winning American sprinter Marion Jones admitted she used steroids in 2000-2001. She pleaded guilty to lying to federal investigators and announced her retirement. Keeping up with the Kardashians, featuring Kim, Chloe, and Courtney Kardashian, premiered on the e-cable network in the US? Nah, never catch on, will it? Argentina elected its first female president, Cristina Fernandez 
de Kirchner. And in the UK, Sir Menzies Campbell resigned as leader of the Liberal Democrats. Have you ever known a longer and less interesting leadership contest? No, nor me. And this was the year that England lost to South Africa in the Rugby World Cup final. So did you get the month and year? It was October 2007. Let's get to today's story. Michael Bright was known to all his friends as Brighty. He was loud, confident. He got on with everyone and was always at the centre of the party. He was the last one to go to bed, the first one to get stuck into the drinks. He was a really popular guy in the stuffy world of insurance with his drive, ambition and ability to achieve results. He was bright, though not academically, leaving school at 18 with just five O-levels. Back in the mid-60s, insurance offered a steady job to school leavers, and he took his first steps in the industry. By 1967, at age 23, he was living in a bedsit in Brixton, South London, and he moved to an up-and-coming insurer known as Orion. He moved swiftly through the ranks, mainly due to his intelligence and his ability to build relationships with everyone, from the somewhat staid Oxbridge business leaders to the most junior salespeople. Everyone liked Brighty. He was soon responsible for UK sales teams, and along with a colleague, Phil Condon, he motivated his teams to produce startling results. In 1982, he moved on to Lombard for a bigger job and a much better financial package, leaving behind Orion what in time was seen as, well, frankly, a bit of a mess. His aggressive building of new business meant that as a deluge of claims began to come through, the company auditors recommended that his division was shut for new business. But this was no concern of Brighty. Again, the results were seen staggeringly good. Again, the results were seen staggeringly good as Brighty motivated his team to achieve incredible success, even greater than creating the 37th most popular UK true crime podcast. Yep, he was that good. I imagine that like me, insurance isn't something you've studied in any great depth. Let's face it, life is frankly too short. But Brighty's success was essentially built on pushing his sales teams to keep winning new business and simultaneously reducing their company's reserves against potential claims. This pincer movement led to much greater profits. But of course, as lay people like us can see, the cutting of reserves has an inherent danger if the claims pile up. You just now need to wear your old school shirt or blouse with a bit of gravy down it, and you could pass as an insurance industry insider. You're welcome. But with these results, Brighty wanted a stake in the business. It wasn't forthcoming, and he began to get restless, and he wanted to be given the opportunity to be properly rewarded for his expertise. Understandably so, he was the hottest prospect around. And when a headhunter came calling with the offer of an exciting new opportunity, hey, we've got a top recruiter lingo, he was interested. He was very interested. The offer in front of him had come from a man of a very different heritage to Brighty. It came from Sir Ian Noble, ex-Eton in Oxford, owner of an estate on the Isle of Skye, founder of Noble Grossart, Edinburgh's premier merchant bank, trustee of numerous Scottish charities, member of the Grand Edinburgh New Club and former Scotsman of the Year. 
He ran a small insurance company and wanted to push it forward to the next level. And now he had the chance to do so, as Allstate, a US insurance company, wanted to sell its UK operations. But what he needed was the right person to head up his ambitious new organisation. And Brighty had soon signed on the dotted line and now needed some great new people to join his brand new company, Independent Insurance. Chris Blackhurts, writing in the Independent newspaper, explains how one industry insider saw it at the time. I quote, It was 1987. Adverts in the insurance press said there was going to be a new insurer. It was going to be exciting and dynamic. Come and join. I'd heard about Michael Bright, that he was very tough, an extremely hard businessman, said one of those early recruits. But he also said it was going to be fun. The phrase fun, fun, fun was one of Bright's favourite expressions. A mantra he used to cajole the troops at sales conference and parties, as in, let's have fun, fun, fun. In the stuffy hidebound world of insurance, there was nothing quite like independent. It was young and aggressive. The new kid on the block not afraid of reputations and no respecter of traditions. Insurance company found to be different shocker was the heading on one of the pages on its own website. Brighty knew that getting the recruitment right was going to be fundamental to his success and he offered packages to attract the very best people. He also introduced other incentives, such as the club concept of the very best brokers, which was soon copied by all across the industry. In many ways, he was a revolutionary, and he was personally involved in the marketing which broke new boundaries, selling this sexy, exciting new company that was transforming the industry. It was no wonder he was inundated with great people wanting to join the party. And importantly, Brighty continued to deliver amazing results. So much so that in 1993, to the delight of Sir Ian and the other investors, independent insurance became the first general insurer to float on the stock market since the Second World War. Soon Brighty's 50k investment into the business was worth closer to £60 million. Times were good, and he was loving the success and adulation that was coming his way. He was working hard and partying hard too. He was known for taking naps during the day so we can ensure he didn't ever leave the party early. He hosted events such as an annual cricket match in the Kent village where he lived in a converted oast house. He enjoyed relaxing in a lavish home in Swindon, sorry, Marbella. And his parties at his flat overlooking Tower Bridge were legendary with only the very best wine being served to his guests. Brighty wasn't, as you can tell, one to melt into the background and he loved the attention driving around London in his bright red E-type Jaguar. It was only at the reception area of Independent Insurance where visitors could flick through the latest edition of Playboy as well as the more usual financial magazines found in the reception areas of insurance companies. His company had started selling the usual fare of motor and household policies But when the recession hit in the early 1990s, and for those of you not around then, this was a devastating time for many. With their core business plummeting, Independent moved into the riskier, but far more financially lucrative area of commercial and industrial insurance. To give you an indication of this diversity, by the year 2000, 
Independent Insurance was the largest insurer of hot air balloons and caravan parks. It looked after a number of large high street retailers, insured over 250,000 council homes and had several high profile customers such as the Williams Formula One motor racing team. And despite their competitors struggling due to increased litigation and a larger number of claims, this didn't seem to be affecting independent at all. And the company kept posting the numbers as well as hosting high-profile events such as sponsoring the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra and regularly entertaining large numbers of guests at venues such as the Royal Albert Hall. In 1996, Brighty was British Entrepreneur of the Year and in 2000, the Chartered Insurance Institute made him its new president. Many commented that few previous of the presidents before him had been quite so eager to wear the chains that came with that position. Maybe this was due to him working up from nothing to achieve this role, which in his industry was a huge deal. In 2000, Independent posted profits of 22 million when others were struggling. Okay, it was a drop from the 65 million profits of the previous year, but the market was tough and industry observers were pleased to see a positive result. And in the CEO review for the year, Bright said that Independent Insurance was, I quote, a quality operator well-placed in an improving market, whose unique and long-standing practice of having its reserves vetted by an independent firm of actuaries, Watson Wyatt, continued to provide a unique level of comfort to shareholders and policyholders. And by this time, Brighty was paying himself a salary of £1.65 as well as all the other benefits. The company was employing over a thousand people, and Brighty was often featured in the financial press, boasting about how his company was just getting started and how positive the future looked for his company, which was already the UK's ninth biggest insurer. Independent insurance was by now valued at £1 billion and his shares were worth millions. In a conference in Spain in March 2001, he boldly announced that this was just the beginning and that the plan for independent insurance was to double in size and few in the audience doubted it. After all, this was Brighty, and everything he touched turned to gold. But just six weeks after Bright's CEO review was published in 2001, he was incredibly ousted by the company, after huge reinsurance regularities were uncovered. In particular, there was concern in the company about a deal done just before the 2000 figures were announced, that had massively boosted the company's performance. And the problems had arisen for the same reason as the issue all through Bright's career, overselling without the reserves. But this time, he'd made things much worse by covering up the losses when this dangerous strategy failed spectacularly. Many of his competitors were not surprised. Outside Independent, many observers felt that the results couldn't be accurate. And they were right. When in March 2001, Independent Insurance published its annual accounts for 2000 and showed a £22 million profit. The reality should have been a loss of at least £180 million. An internal investigation showed a massive hole in Independent's reserves caused by claims data having not been entered into the company's systems for a number of years. The board was shocked, finally, and worked out they needed around £220 million of additional capital 
for the company to survive. But first, they had to be sure that everything else was out in the open. It wasn't. Shockingly, they found details of four secret side contracts arranged by Bright. These in effect wiped out the published profit of the company and put them way into debt. The balance sheet was a total mess. This changed everything and independent insurance had no choice but to shut their books to new business and effectively knowing the company was now worthless went into insolvency the next day. PwC were called in to see if the company could be saved. Many felt it could, but whether this is true or not, the company collapsed in June 2001. The 1,000 people employed by independent insurance all lost their jobs. Shareholders and investors lost money, including those with independent in their pension funds, and independent insurance's own staff, many who had invested all their savings into the company. And those policyholders of outstanding claims weren't able to get compensation for their losses. Thousands of lives were negatively affected. Other companies took the hit and went under, and some lives were ruined. Plus, of course, almost £370 million was paid out by the Financial Services Authority in compensation, and then multi-millions of taxpayers' money was used to prosecute 63-year-old Bright and two of his senior colleagues independent. Former finance director, 56-year-old Dennis Lomaz, and his ex-colleague from Orion, managing director of independent insurance, 48-year-old Philip Condon. The prosecution team were concerned about the trial. Insurance is a dry subject, and would the jury understand the information? And could it be kept short and simple enough to be understood? So they got down to the facts very quickly. Essentially, the trial of the three men was about two frauds. One was off-balance sheet accounting, where key claims and contract data wasn't entered on the main computer system, but stored on whiteboards, so the information was kept from auditors, actuaries, reinsurers, shareholders and policyholders. Secondly, reinsurance. Many of the contracts were concealed and loss-making, and they were used to offset liabilities with other insurers. The court heard the trio hid the real state of the company from the fellow directors, professional advisors and investors in a bid to protect their reputations, jobs and salary. Undisclosed liabilities were buried, figures manipulated and bad reinsurance contracts concealed. Jurors were even told how the three had suppressed a damning internal audit which highlighted major concerns a year before the company went under. Bright tearfully explained from the dock how everything he did was for the benefit of the company. He accused his staff of hiding key details from him in poorly written contracts and this is why the company had failed. One executive ignored the company rules by selling a significant number of insurance policies just to their four favourite brokers. He blamed the external advisors, their actuaries, Watson Wyatt, and their auditors, KPMG, who hadn't flagged up the internal issues. Basically, he blamed everyone except for Michael Bright. He said that if he was guilty of anything, it was of dismissing the issues as an admin nightmare. By the time he'd become aware this was really serious, then it had hit him that there was a frightening black hole full of nasty, black, crawly things which had infected the company like cancer. Lomas, when he gave evidence, 
Reckoned he hadn't received many of the emails sent to him. Yeah, right. That defence is never going to be a winner, is it? And he too said he wasn't aware of the magnitude of the situation. And Condon said he had no knowledge of any sort of a cover-up. After the jury spent over 40 hours deliberating, they came back to announce their verdict on Bright, who they found guilty of two counts of conspiracy to defraud. Lomas was found guilty of the same charges, and Condon was found guilty of one charge and acquitted of another. Bright was sentenced to spend seven years in prison, Lomas was given four years, and Condon three. The judge told Bright that the scale of the fraud went altogether beyond the scope of anything Parliament had in mind when fixing the sentence for this offence, possibly by a factor of several times, and attacked the breezy manner in which he had tried to blame some of his hard-working employees, adding, You introduced a fear factor into the working lives of your managers. It was against this background that the fraud which you devised was able to thrive. As I understand it, Bright had to sell his homes and declared himself bankrupt. And though he did keep 40% of his £3 million pension pot after paying back 60% in a confiscation order. Condon also paid back 1.3 million and Lomas 470,000. In 2012, Philip Condon died at 63. And in April 2017, a whole 16 years after the collapse, there was news. Let me briefly quote the FT newspaper. Independence administrators said that 6,000 creditors would receive about 14.5 pence for every £1 that they were owed by the company. Those creditors include customers who are owed refunds, customers with claims on policies written by the company, and former employees. A total of £140 million will be paid out to them in what PwC described as a first and final dividend. 16 years later, I mean really, how ludicrous is that? But no doubt the reasons for this delay are entirely valid. No doubt. So what do you make of what we've heard today? It's easy to draw parallels with Bernard Madoff, who went unchecked by a board as his fraud grew. It was similar with Michael Bright and his two senior colleagues, whose board at Independent Insurance seemingly were unaware of what was going on. Or maybe those that were aware, or at least had suspicions, were fearful of rocking the boat or confronting him. After all, Michael Bright was a hard man to challenge, loved by all, a proven winner with a big personality. Except by love by all, maybe Robert Maxwell, good old Captain Bob, is a better comparison. The bottom line is that Bright had always taken risks and pushed as hard as he could, staying just about legal as he attained tremendous success. When his company appeared to be starting to fail, like any gambler, he doubled down on what had always worked for him in the past for success. It was a natural response. With his two board members, they felt that if they could just conceal their losses for a short term, then things would turn around. After all, they're the egos of many who run companies or countries, who tend to see success as a little bit too much due to the actions they took, whereas failure is more blamed on external events. Just the human nature of people used to winning with the big salaries and egos that come with that. And all those people affected financially by the collapse. Some who were close to retirement 
would never have recovered from this fraud. It really affected so many lives. And what a brighty now in his 70s. I wonder what he thinks when he looks back on the events that led to the demise of independent insurance. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of true crime, please come and join the conversation on the UK True Crime Facebook group. And to listen to bonus episodes and all the behind-the-scenes stuff from the 37th most popular true crime podcast in the UK and help me keep producing the show, please support me on Patreon. Do it today and you can share the joy of those supporters who are watching me right now as I record a one-monthly episode live for Patreon supporters. What more could you possibly want? I know, all the stats from the show. Well, as you asked, yep. You can get these too. Just head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. They sound so much like Alan Partridge. So that's all for me today and for August. So until we speak again next week, please do take it easy. And despite all the others, stay classy. Cheerio.